Guess what? What? I have a new hip-hop group called Hamster Cancer. That name sucks. I will never buy something called that. Well, can you come up with something better? In the corner back by the woodpile. That's a dope name. <laughs> I don't think so! I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. This here is another edition of Trying to Hurt Cats, the philosophical podcast where we throw anonymous quotes at anonymous folks and we see what survives the dumpster fire. The first quote, we hate in others what we despise about ourselves. This is one of those statements. My first instinct is that it's true. But then when I really think about it, I go, I hope it's not true. Because I don't want it to be true. If I reflect on it at all, I go, wait, wait a minute, I hate another is okay. Well, I, I personally hate pride or arrogance. Well, that doubles back on you. If you don't mind me asking, is that a temptation for you? I think it's a temptation for everybody, well, sure. you know, in some sense. Yeah. But it's something that I, I know I just, I don't care for. I don't think anybody does. I think if you walk in and you sense someone as being just obviously arrogant, you know, right. just... Or condescending is probably a better even way to put it, just in social circles. And if I despise that, that means that's that's in me? Or that when I walk in a room, everybody feels like I'm condescending. So there's like this trap of it. So I'm not convinced it's absolutely true as a as a something you could you know chisel in stone. Uh-huh. But it's one of those things, again, you, your first response is, oh, wow, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and then you crawl around. So everything that you naturally condemn, whether it's pride or selfishness or greed or, you know, people being touchy or, uh, you know, prickly in how they deal with things, I like to think that I'm not those things, but those are the things I don't like in people when they're overly uh, sensitive to things and react defensively. I admit that I don't like that, but holy cow, does that mean that's what I am? So if I rephrased it to often what we hate and others we despise about ourselves. Well, yeah, it'd be easier to swallow, and I would probably think of it as a more accurate statement by experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I did hear somebody say, I was listening to a teaching recently, that the guy said, I think the dat- data was every person on average has 3.5 blind spots, <laughs> okay. which, which a blind spot, by definition, is something you don't see that right. everyone else sees. Uh-huh. And so that, you know, that may be what it's getting to as well, which is very, very scary. I remember my wife, we were arguing, and uh, she said, your problem is, is, is you really do think you're the good one in this setup. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, well, yeah. Well, of course I do. Yeah. That's why I'm arguing my case. But I, but, but it struck me like, oh, wow. That's that's kind of all three and a half blind spots at once. You yeah. know, boom. It's kind of like, <laughs> and uh, she tagged my base because I, I think I was reacting. Because we all get angry about our pet things. It's not that I'm mean to anger. I just get angry about different things than the other person does. Again, that's one of those statements that it's like this cyclical thing. I instinctively think that's probably true, but I wonder about it, and then I get scared if it is true. Again, we hate in others what we despise about ourselves. What does the Bible say? He without fault cast the first stone. Well, the other one is... uh... How can you complain about a speck in your brother's eye when you got a plank in your own eye? I remember I asked a friend once. We had a psychiatrist, psychologist in our circle of friends, and he seemed to be the most weird one of the whole bunch. <laughs> weird and in what way? 
Well, he just didn't seem to have uh, social cues and couldn't, didn't seem to relate to people right, you know. And, and my question was, how can he be in a position, be educated, to help people with their problems? You know, he's a weirdo himself. And <laughs> <laughs> my friend said, well, that's generally the case. People don't see it themselves. And in this case, thought he was able to qualify to help people with their problems, but then he might have had the same problem himself and just didn't know it. I know two people with doctorates in psychology, and they're the two most oblivious people about how other people perceive them. They think everybody loves them, and, and it's actually quite the opposite. Well, this probably has to do with their makeup and why they choose that, that vocation, maybe. Well, we've noticed, you hate to talk about people in authority, but it's, our, our, most of the places we were around were preachers and evangelists. It seems like the subjects they harped on the most was the ones they had the most problem with themselves. I don't know what stage of life, you know, it popped in my head. I thought, well, that don't make sense. This guy's been hard on this and hard on that. Then you kind of find out he's not doing what he's saying, you know. Maybe he's trying to convince himself or preach to himself. Maybe so. You would have to think why, if someone is constantly harping on something, or it's heavy in their mind, why is that? And maybe it's because it's their struggle with themselves. Maybe it's a, an act to put up or a defense to try to cover up their uh, shortcomings, you know, rather than they don't want people to see that they have that flaw, so they maybe would criticize other ones. As you start having children and grandchildren, there's times when you think, well, I need to correct them on that. And you think, you know, they probably got that from me. <laughs> and you think... Well, how can I be so hard on them when I'm probably the, the source or the reason for them acting that way or feeling that way? So it is, it's a very sobering thought, and it <laughs> kept my tongue out of trouble a few times. Not enough. You still want to correct them a little bit, because, like, hey, I, I know firsthand this doesn't work. Or Yeah, well, early on I probably didn't have sense enough. There was this gulf, you know, between parents and children when I was around where you weren't to let children know your weakness or what you had maybe done wrong or you learned from your fault, you know. You were the authority and you couldn't show any side of humanity. You just had to take it for what I said. I know what I'm talking about. That's all changed now for the better. You know, people do discuss. Back then we were told to do this because I say so. and not. Nowadays, people do try to explain things and that's good. Sometimes you don't have time. They need to do what you tell them when you tell them. And we'll talk about later, but back, I probably didn't give them that option to talk about later. And that's the way I was raised. You know, I didn't yeah. know any different. There again, I wish maybe the schools or somebody had taught something in child rearing. I probably wouldn't have paid any attention to them anyway. Probably people, <laughs> Sunday school and probably my parents probably tried to tell me and I probably just blew them off. Yeah. I don't remember when I realized you were a human being, but I do remember when mom, when I realized she wasn't a deity. We were watching a television program and I asked mom, so what's going to happen? It went to a commercial break or something. She says, I don't know. I didn't write the show. <laughs> and I was, I was stunned. I thought she knew everything. <laughs> I don't know that I despise. I think I understand more and maybe can have more of an insight. I know I've heard people critical of other, maybe I, I have to talk about employees, or they did such and such, or they, they have this problem. And, and the truth of it is, they don't know. In some cases, I have the same problem. They're just not aware of it. And I thought, well, you know, you're real hard on the guy because, you know, I know what it's like and it's not as as simple as you may think it is, you know, flaws we may have or illnesses and stuff, you know. So I don't know that I would agree totally that we despise another's what we don't like about ourselves. Obviously, we don't like to see 
our own mistakes and our own flaws repeated. Uh, I have found out that people somehow I didn't like about their personality kind of find out later on as I knew them more, they were probably a lot more, <laughs> their personality was a lot like mine, you know, uh, and maybe that's the reason I didn't like them. I think two very alike people uh, probably do have a hard time getting along. Again, we hate in others what we despise about ourselves. We always are quick to judge others. And when it comes to someone, maybe someone pointing out the negative in us, we're like, ooh, we get upset or we get defensive. Mm -hmm. And like, I guess my sister's gonna hate me, but we argue a lot, right? If I call her out, she gets so upset, like so, so, so upset. And if she calls me out, I'm like, you know what, you're right. You know, and I don't care if, like, if I'm wrong, please correct me. I wanna know because like, I wanna better myself. Even my other brother, which my brother and sister, they're super like, he always will be like, yeah, that's cool that Vicky, you know, she can annoy these when she's wrong. And I try to, I try to, even though not always with my husband. I think, you know, when people say when we judge others, it's because we're insecure about ourselves, you know. And I guess that could be true. Is that true? I wonder because I know someone that's highly critical. Right. But they're awful confident. And, <laughs> I know, right? And somehow when I bring up one of their flaws... Yeah. And like 10 minutes later, they've convinced me that it's my, <laughs> I'm the one who has the flaw, you know, for, for seeing it the way I see yeah. it. And there's those people who are always going to be like, I'm right. I'm everything about me is super mm -hmm. perfect, you know? And I'm like, Hey man, if everything's perfect about you, cool. Like yeah. I'm not there yet, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I wish they'd go be perfect somewhere else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, I don't think I hate anybody, you know, I probably really dislike you. Mm -hmm. Well, that said, like, have you ever strongly disliked somebody? Mm-hmm. And then realize, like, oh, dang, I've got the same quality that I don't like. Yes. Okay. And it's like a big slap in the face. And I'm like, oh. How do you realize that? Because that's one thing I, I wonder what creates self-awareness. Because um, it seems like either you have it or you don't. Right. Like me, like if someone tells me I'm wrong, I want to self-reflect. And like if my sister or my best, mostly my mom, you know, I listen to my mom a lot. I think she's super wise and everything. So if she tells me there's something I need to work on. I would definitely take it into account, obviously, you know, I'm not. Does she do it kindly? Yeah, and I think maybe that's how you to do it, too, you know? Like, she will tell me kindly, and she'll tell me, you know, she loves me, but she didn't like a certain thing about me. And I think if you take it in that approach, maybe people are willing to work on themselves. But if you kind of say it, you know, well, and I don't know, maybe it depends, because, like, I always feel like if I tell my husband something I don't like about him, I'm, like, hoping, in my head, I'm hoping... He'll be like, oh, yeah, she's right. I'll fix it, you know? Mm -hmm. But <laughs> nobody does that. <laughs> nobody has that mentality, I guess. Well, we get, we get offensive. In the marriage, it, things become different. It does right. Yeah. And I'm just like, can't you, tell, can't you just see that I'm trying to better you? Well, see, that's the thing. Uh, <laughs> I think about this sometimes because sometimes, I guess it depends on the amount of criticism your spouse gives you. But I, I feel like spouses probably dish it out to each other more because you're, you're with each other longer. Well, and I want, like, that's and, what I want. I want honesty. And I know the different genders, I think, hear things differently. Right, yeah. You know? I think men tend to, if they hear the wife nag right. a lot, they start to wonder, does she even like me? Right. Why does she marry me? I was talking to my stepdaughter about this that, uh -huh. and, my, and my stepson too, warning them both, be careful because you might push them away. That is so true, and I think, you know, if I'm speaking honestly, I've only been married three years almost, but um, I am not a confrontational person. I don't like to argue. Like, if my husband, I'm like, okay, you're right, you're right. Can we just move on, you know? And that was the same growing up with my sister. She loves to argue, and I never like to argue. 
And so I always say I married my sister because yeah. there's so much alike. And I'm like, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, for real. Yeah, like, and like your husband and your sister are high five. For each real, other. they yeah. are. They're like, back me up. And I'm like, are you serious? I can't stand you guys right now. Wow. You know, there were times when I was like, you know what? I'm going to stand up for myself and I'm actually going to argue back. And I would feel like, am I pushing him away? Like, you know, am I, am I too much? So I don't know. I feel like I would kind of self-doubt myself, mm-hmm. but I don't want to. I also don't want to be like a pushover too sometimes, you know, I kind of want to stick up for myself. It, you know, you feel like you want to push back, but you don't want to do to yeah. others what people are doing to you that you don't like. It's, right, it's very difficult. exactly. But you kind of want them to understand so they can empathize. Yeah, and more. see, I'm the type of person, I don't like to talk about my feelings either. I don't, mm-hmm. I'd rather just like bottle it all in. Mm-hmm. And so... And hit the bottle. Yeah, and explode. <laughs> exactly. And so then I feel like that's the problem too. Do you do that? Like do you eventually back, when you get back in a corner or... It, it all um, kind of comes out at once. Yeah, like in a few years. Yeah. Okay. Something like that. <laughs> like in a few months. Can you give me like a heads up so I can like be out of town? Exactly. You know, I'm like, Tim, you better get out of here. I'm about to explode. <laughs> the wrath is coming down. Right, okay, cool. Again, we hate in others what we despise about ourselves. To me, it's asking, it asks a question about self-awareness, which is a huge issue to me. When we find ourselves hating or despising someone else, and if it is reflection of us that we're disliking, are we aware of it? Can a person be aware of it? One of the reasons that this quote really stuck out to me is, is we have two kids. We have a son and a daughter, and my son is just like me. My daughter is just like my wife. A family member had pointed it out. They said, you are twice as hard on your son as you are Emery. You're much harder on your son than your daughter. And then I started noticing it to be true. And then also noticing that my wife was much harder on our daughter than on our son. Uh, And we both decided that it was because of that. It was because of this reflection of ourself that we wanted to address in our children. Can you give a specific example of something like you're really hard on your son, but it's also something that that you have suffered from? One is anger. He really has a hard time controlling himself when he's angry. I'm more mature in that now than even I was five years ago and continue to mature in it, but it's a struggle that I've had. You, know, you seem like a laid-back guy. I can't imagine you being angry, but maybe you've worked on yourself? or I have done a great deal of work on myself. It's been a few years ago, I got so angry that I punched a brick wall and broke my hand. Dang! Yeah, and then I had to get up in the pulpit and explain to my church why I had a cast on my hand. <laughs> well, that'll humble you. Humbling experience. Yeah. But that's sort of a, a few and far between kind of episode for me. And some of it may be... You mentioned laid back, but I just don't express anger healthily throughout the your common days. Uh, that it gets built up and pent up, and when I finally do react, I'm reacting to everything. Stereotypically, that's kind of a guy thing. I, I notice that gets attributed because that was something that um, my ex-wife kind of accused me of because I never got angry up until finally there came a point where I guess I was in the corner or against the wall that I got so furious <laughs> and all this thing starts exploding out of my mouth, you know, and I think she was right. And then I probably should have, uh, you know, said I was being irritated or give some sign that I was getting yeah. mad instead of adapting to it. It's always in private with me. I've never flown off the handle really in public or on anyone else. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, when I get angry, it's never directed at anyone. Now, there may be an event that a person precipitates that drives me to anger, but even, even, or drives me to act on my anger, but even then, it's not usually directed at that person, which is really peculiar to me. It's mm-hmm. just this generalized fury, <laughs> diagnosed with generalized fury disorder. Yeah. But Rhett, our son, he, when he doesn't get something that he wants, just has these volatile reactions. And in my work on anger, there's a, a sort of rule of thumb that I learned in a class a long time ago, but this, that we have uh, p- personal rights that we've set up for ourselves. And they're often unspoken or unwritten. These are the things that, that I believe are rules and have to happen when someone else infringes on one of those rules or an event infringes on that rule. That's what precipitates us to act out in anger. So how have you been able to help your son, do you feel? Like, how do you advise him? Especially because, uh, is he a teenager? No, he's five. Oh. <laughs> oh, man, I thought he was... Yeah. Well, okay, yeah. well, that's a little different. Uh, well, the so, way I work with him on it is I was, I'm trying to teach him that it is okay to be angry. <laughs> but in his anger, it's not okay to yell at me or his mom. Okay. And that's been hard to work through. Even we've tried, you know, why don't you go hit a pillow or why don't you go scream into a pillow and then when you feel better, come back. He understands that? He does, um, but he can't. He's not very good at practicing it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's amazing that he's so young and he already has those uh, traits. Yeah. To me, it reveals a lot about myself because it's not something he's really seen me do. He's not imitating you. Yeah, he's not imitating me because I'm not flying off the handle all the time. <laughs> um, it's very rare and usually it's behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. And in, it, you know, if I'm in front of them, I can think of maybe once or twice that I've gotten angry and kind of stormed around the house in front of them. <laughs> but, so yeah. you're saying it's maybe genetic or something? Well, yeah, and that is the there therein lies goes back to the question, the ourselves, you know, and the self that I see, of mine in my kid, and then it's no wonder that people try to live vicariously through their children. You know, mm-hmm. if you've always wanted to be a world-renowned author, that you're going to try to manifest that in your own child because it is, it really is this little image of you. It's a right. mirror of you. You talk about self-awareness, and it's something I've asked a, a lot of people. Do you have a theory about how to jumpstart self-awareness in somebody else? I, I can say in my own life, I know a lot of falling on my face has really probably helped me be more self-aware. You work with people, you're a pastor, you um, counsel people. Is there any tried-and-true method that sometimes will help people? I don't know that there's a tried-and-true method. Asking why is a good jump starter to me. Mm-hmm. To say, well, why do you think you did that? What do you think happened You know that, that makes you jealous of this person? Why are you jealous? Somebody might be telling me, you know, well, you know, that person just gets on my nerves and I don't want to be around them anymore or something like that. So, well, well why? You know, and kind of get down in, into that. Keep asking why. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are not interested in being self-aware and... I often think that a person that isn't, I'll say this from time to time, a person that isn't self-aware is probably the most dangerous person to be with because they don't know why they're doing the things they do. Would you agree that if you're not self-aware, you also can't be empathetic? It would certainly make it challenging. I use a lot of personality inventories. So 
Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram and rely on those a great deal when I'm working with people. And the Enneagram is one of the oldest personality uh, typing devices that we know of. I can't remember how far back it goes, but it's essentially there's a circle with nine figures on it. And each of those nine figures represents a personality type and they're divided into three sections. So, you know, you got three of them, three of them, three of them, and it's people that res respond and act in their heart, people that respond and act in their head, and people that respond and act in their gut. And then there's, you know, the subsets of those three things. So for instance, you take a person who is on the Enneagram, a number two would be called the helper. And if a person is a helper, they really want to just, they want to serve other people. That's their heart to do that. Uh, they want to get in and serve. And if they see something that needs to be done on your desk, they want to do it out of help for you. Is it ever a flaw, you think? Yeah, oh yeah. So, okay. so when it becomes a flaw is when the neighbor is sick and the number two thinks, I'm going to make a casserole and take it to the neighbor. And they do that. And then two months later, they're sick and the neighbor doesn't bring a casserole. The flaw is the resentment mm -hmm. because they're unaware of the, that part of their person that is causing them to make the casserole. And then also, in a way, unable to be empathetic, maybe you would say, and that is assuming that everyone else thinks the way that they think. Unaware of myself, I can't be aware of others. Mm -hmm. Then this resentment builds. And that's where you ask the question, you know, someone says, you know, I'm aggravated at my neighbor because they didn't bring me a casserole. What kind of casserole? <laughs> uh, broccoli and cheese. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> okay. President Donald Trump. I have noticed on, of course, Facebook and Twitter, my friends, man, he is really hated. And the things that my friends tend to hate him for, I can't help but see that they are guilty of the same things, like the, the arrogance, the name-calling, for example. I want to sometimes say to them, maybe you know you hate him so much because he reminds you of yourself. Is that the best thing to say? or I don't know that saying something like that would ever... Not ever. That's too, that's too definitive. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that saying something like that would often help draw a person into that conclusion. Mm -hmm. My idea is that you all, that a person always has to get there themselves. And mm -hmm. so questions are the best way to get them there. But I, I see exactly what you're talking about. And it's really indicative of the lack of self-awareness at large in our culture that a person cannot even see the connection between these two behaviors. Mm -hmm. Like to them, it, it's so polar opposite just because of the ideology. Right. But it's essentially, it's the same behavior. It's the, it's the same behavior just with different ideologies. And they, a lot of people can't see that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, a lot of these folks also like other political figures that are on their side. They have yeah. the same traits as, as Trump and you know, they're, they're wonderful or they're justified. And of course, I always think to myself, like, they're public figures that irritate me. And I think, okay, <laughs> am I that person too, you know? And then sometimes uh, it's true. When I'm working with managing people or working with people, let's say, you know, you, you've got some people in a work environment that you find out they're both the same Myers-Briggs or the same Enneagram type, brace yourself because it will inevitably lead to conflict because of the two being the same. 
at where you work, do you have like a little chart behind that, like the closet door of all the people who work here and have the different enneagrams, like just in case? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Not in the closet door, but okay. yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I and like next week we're going through where I will lead them through it and explain and oh. talk talk to them about it. Like I don't want it to be just like I know it. I want them to be. I want the people that I'm around to be self aware. But just because I love doing that stuff and it's a yeah. pet of mine doesn't mean everybody likes it. In fact, there's there are personality types that are predisposed off the bat to uh, disregard personality types you know if you're not gonna <laughs> you're not gonna put me in a box you know you yeah. can't pigeonhole me you don't know me you know that kind of stuff uh, so there's there's personality types that are just not gonna have it to begin with okay. <laughs> but yeah but it's that that deal of when the, the two are the same, they run into conflict, people will conflict with each other because they're so similar. Yeah. It's such an interesting dynamic. It's also interesting when they get married. Yeah. Uh, kind of reversing your question, Let's with that I'm going to flip it over mm-hmm. on, the, on a different side of the coin. That we despise other people when we see things we hate about ourselves in them. There are things when my wife and I too are, are quite opposite. And I will. I find often that the things that she will do that aggravate me and really get on my nerves are from the source of the same thing that made me love her. Hmm. So an example of that might be, you know, like I'm I'm an organized person and I like the um, books to be alphabetized and everything to be filed and. Uh, when you look in my drawer, my clothes are folded and put in the drawer, and, and her clothes are just kind of you, shoved you in the drawer. Your wife's a slob. Yeah. Well, now, now, wait a minute. She's not a slob, necessarily. She just, uh, she's not a detail-oriented person, there. necessarily. <laughs> That's way to frame that. Okay, go ahead. So let's say, you know, she kind of goes through her day and without a lot of attention to detail, and she's just spontaneous, and, well, now I'm going to do this, I'm going to go do that, and there's no plan or rhyme or reason and I'll get so aggravated and I'll, I'll think if you would just plan your day you know and schedule it and say I'm going to do this at one o'clock and this at two o'clock and this at three o'clock and I'll get aggravated with it but at the same time the, the very thing I love about her and one of the very things I love about her is that she's spontaneous mm-hmm. is that she will pull me out of my rigidness my rigidity and my introvertedness and that she'll she'll pull me out of that and it's a great benefit and I love her because I, I like I like being spontaneous sometimes. I just don't like doing it with the laundry. <laughs> so you see what I mean there? Yeah. The, the things that can drive us crazy about a person sometimes are the things, the same source of the things that we can love about that person. Next quote. Tonight, the moon looks as if it were freshly washed. Let's have a toast. For me, that, that, the, what you read describes like if you're happy and there's nothing blurry in front of you, 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 you would like to, 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 to make, to, to have a toast or make it as, as a party time, you know, uh-huh. if you don't have problems. Okay. So if I had problems, I may not notice that the moon looks like it's been washed. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. It makes you more like busy with your problem right. than then. When you look at your baby, mm-hmm. I mean, I know that obviously there's problems with the diaper and all that, right. but do you ever think like, ah, life is good? Oh yeah, I, I, when I look at her, I forget everything. Oh. Yeah, I, I never complain about nothing good. with with her. She's a baby and she's awesome. Congratulations. Thank again. you so much. <laughs> <laughs>
again. Tonight, the moon looks as if it were freshly washed. Let's have a toast. That's lovely. Kind of reminds me of one of the pages in the tiny book of tiny stories books that have little miniature story poems, often with a really great drawing to go with them. So I'm trying to imagine what the drawing would be with that phrase. But it, uh, it conjures up for me uh, an image of two people who are uh, very much in love in some particular way. It doesn't have to be romantic love. It could be through friendship or uh, family or maybe even just the really awesome connections that you have with strangers on occasion that don't have longevity in their relationship, but that they're really spot on for that moment. And that these people are sitting under the moonlight, the really bright, well, a really dark sky, but with bright stars in it and a bright moon, a full moon. And that they have some bit of picnic, a midnight picnic. And I imagine that after they stare at the moon for a while and that they get so enthralled in their conversation with each other that the moonlight becomes more of a background Um, and not the main focus because they're so much enjoying each other's company. Again, tonight, the moon looks as if it were freshly washed. Let's have a toast. Yeah, I've never, never thought it looked washed, but I can respect that others do. <laughs> and uh, You say you're not really a passionate person, but you said that kind of, I don't know if, yeah. I don't know if you, I, and you say sometimes you envy people that... I do. That, so talk about that for a second. Yeah. Do you um, wish you saw the moon as just, just had a bath? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Again, that's never a phrase I've ever thought. Well, I mean... But um, yeah, I wish I saw it as, or do I wish I saw it as something glorious that I needed to observe all the time, mm. I guess. Yeah. Instead um, of just a big rock in the sky. Yeah, like, oh, I mean, that's how I know when it's nighttime. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you don't even see it as a rock. It's just... so, I sound terrible. Um, <laughs> no, it's just, different. Yeah. It's different, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, I, I think of you as a passionate person that has, you know, lots of, lots of, what is it, uh, pots in the oven. What's that? That's not the right phrase. I don't know. Oven's in the fire or something. Oh, like that. Yeah. I the fire. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I, I'm envious of that, but I, I'm most comfortable in my stability, you know, yeah. <laughs> and uh, my lists, my government work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I mean, another example is I just even I guess, falling in love. Um, Obviously, you were passionate about that. I was. I was, but it wasn't, in some ways, I was, I was hesitant because it wasn't, I don't want to say it wasn't passionate, but it wasn't like there were stars in my eyes and I, I you know and I had other friends wonderfully kind of going through same situations at the same time or afterwards and they they knew the moment it happened that they could pinpoint when and I think my husband and I released my end of the, the relationship we kind of we fell into it it was a gradual process it wasn't I didn't know on the first date yeah it grew for me and it grows still now and um but yeah, in, in having friends going through the same thing at the same time, it was just different to me. Like, that's so strange that she knew immediately that this was the one and she would scream it from the rooftops, post it on Facebook or something. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't do that. It was, you know, I'd, he'd show up in a picture or two, but I wasn't, mm-hmm. 
demonstrative about it, I guess. Have you ever had a passion or a poetic or a creative person say that they envied you? Yeah, actually I, I have, yeah, just uh, What were the reasons? I guess that I was more even kill. I didn't fall real hard. I also didn't probably have the same highs. They were so hurt by things that I hadn't experienced or to that level, I hadn't experienced them. Again, tonight, the moon looks as if it were freshly washed. Let's have a toast. Well, you know, I'll drink to anything. <laughs> <laughs> What's the last thing you drank to? Being a winner. At tennis? Mm-hmm. Would you have drank if you had lost? No. So you limit your drinking to when you win? Yes. Really? Yes. When did that start? There's nothing to celebrate when you lose. You don't drink your sorrows away? No, I do not. Okay. So tell me how you won that game. Patience and positivity. When you say patience, mm-hmm. patience of what? Sometimes it's a slow game mm-hmm. and you tend to want to rush through it and that never works. So you get the person all wore out or something? Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And they don't realize that that's what you're doing? They do realize. This, I guess, is a metaphor for life as well. It's not always going to move at your pace and you can be impatient. Or you can be patient. And impatience rarely accomplishes anything. Why do you think instinctively we always jump to impatience first? That's our inclination. I think that we live in a fast-paced world based on instant gratification. Mm. And that patience is a lost art. Um, Could you get to the point? Last quote, the creative act is an escape from the power of time and an ascent to the divine. I've always had this urge to um, reorder things, I guess. And and from when I was young, uh, I was doing it, whether it was words, writing stories or poetry or songs when I was a little bit older, or painting or then writing music. I've definitely felt like there was some sort of, well, for me, it was a literal escape because I had a, a life that was chaotic and dangerous and kind of v- filled with violence and fear. And so music, art, consumption was a, an escape, but very quickly consuming art wasn't enough. I needed to actually engage in creating it. It's funny, <laughs> my wife even sometimes and my kids make fun of me because when I'm listening to music, I have to physically interact with it. I have to play air drums. I'm 48 years old and I, I, ha- I physically respond to, to music. And I think that there's something about uh, great art that m- it makes me want to create something. At some point along the way, I heard, I think it was Blaise Pascal, creativity or art is about bringing order to chaos. And that resonated with me. And it kind of gave me permission to pursue it in a redemptive, purposeful. This, was, this wasn't pure escapism. I wasn't just putting my fingers in my ears and humming la, 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 la to try and drown out the noise. I was actually trying to accomplish something. And in a way, 
I think that it's about building a new kingdom out of the rubble of the fallen kingdom. And, it, and, and so this idea that it's an escape from the power of time, if time is the shackles of, of the fall and then is sent to the divine, then maybe that, that idea of the pieces of the fallen kingdom are what we have right now. And we are reassembling them kind of like kids in a sandbox, you know, and, and eventually redemption sets its piece, these pieces back in motion. And we get to, we get to manipulate them and work with them now as they come into alignment into whatever the new kingdom is. What you're saying, the way you're describing it, it reminds me, and this has come up maybe through synchronicity uh, a lot on these podcasts, the fact that that God took uh, out of chaos and, you know, made order in us and creation. And then because we're made in the image of God, a big part of that is we're supposed to also create and we're supposed to, which is interesting because you say, you can almost add to what you're saying that we're supposed to bring order out of chaos even as human beings right i would say though and maybe this is my bias but ex nihilo you know the the out of nothing god created mm-hmm. and to me nothing is different than chaos right nothing is peace well, i'm talking about like in the he talked about the formless void yeah. and all that but my point is not to argue that but mm-hmm. but to say that to me chaos is actually everything bouncing around in violence and mm-hmm. noise, right. whereas Nihilo is total peacefulness. Like there's nothing, there's no noise. It's just silence, mm-hmm. and that silence wasn't good for some reason. You know, like the the total lack of noise wasn't good, mm-hmm. and so God spoke out of nothing, ex nihilo, and created. But also after the fall, after this chaos starts, this entropy starts, and the beautiful, perfect creation falls into disarray. And we get little moments where it comes into alignment and it's like little whiffs of a little scent of the way things are supposed to be. But we don't really get to experience it yet until it's redeemed. Mm -hmm. But we do get moments of it, like little hints of it. To me, that's what art is about. And so, yes, I do think that, I think that's what tending the garden is all about. I think that that picture that we're given in that story is that that the garden was set up there in this beautiful perfect way that's a great artistic rendering and then it goes amok mm-hmm. and then adam and eve are set in that to tend the garden and so as artists we are to tend our gardens and we're given the elements we're given the, the ingredients but it's our job to be co-creators and and when we we do that we're not adding to the noise we're we're helping to shape something beautiful out of that noise but we're also not supposed to be pursuing quiet like i mean i'm not saying that there's times we're quiet you know what I'm saying? you can take any metaphor too far but quiet is good because uh-huh. we need quiet in our lives but i'm saying it's not about going back to nihilo <laughs> you know, to nothingness i don't know why my brain jumped to this i think because you said about the lack of noise uh being bad have you ever read the epic of gilgamesh i read Parts of it, and then a summary a long time ago, yeah. Well, in there, there's a flood story, and there's yeah. kind of a... No- I, that's the part that I read. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you remember, but the reason why the gods decided to flood the earth and destroy humanity is because they were too noisy. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so. That's true. That is true. And I think that part might be true, actually accurate. <laughs> <laughs>
The creative act is an escape from the power of time and an ascent to the divine. First of all, the outside of time kind of thing is like, if I have a story, what am I gonna do except go to like my origin? You know, kind of think of like who I am and then translate that to like a character. I mean, this is any creative act. So I'm thinking of stories and whatnot, but the idea that you're gonna go outside yourself, you know, this might be seen later, but it could be about earlier. And so that you're kind of breaking time in that sense. Oh yeah. And of course, the outside of time in the first place, that's where the divine exists. The idea of Christ is that the outside of time divine comes into time. Mm -hmm. And so we see that as like a, oh, it happened here at this point. And in some ways, it's just that's just what it looks like, is that it happened at that point. Uh, I, I, I never thought of that. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I mean, do you find yourself, because you're a creative guy, mm. escaping time or communing with the divine or...? Well, to be honest, I have unfortunately kind of lost my sense of time in a lot, in a lot of ways. Like I was just talking about still working at Barnes & Noble, because I've been there two years now. And I mean, it was only just on a whim. And like the Navy, I went in, the only connection or idea was like, well, my brother worked there, so I can, I can definitely get a job there. Cause, Cause my brother's an idiot. It, well, <laughs> not, not because of that, but because they know him I and did, I know, oh, okay, okay. and they know just, he did, <laughs> but as a reference, uh, <laughs> no, he's, at, he's smarter than I am, okay. actually, but anyway. <laughs> so you feel like you've lost two years of your life? No, I don't feel that way I do sometimes go oh man if I had really pursued such and such at that age maybe I could have been doing that for 15 years or something like that now I don't necessarily think that's true because I was a different person at such and such an age but I mean if it takes 10 years to do something that does kind of scare me. Like, is that in my constitution to, to go after something f for that period of time with the correct amount of focus? We talked off tape about uh, your well, different faith and different ideas about divine. Mm. When you have done the creative act and, and maybe have felt like you've, I don't know, hung out with the divine, mm. what, what is it to you? What, what is it? Divine. Yeah, I mean... It, and I don't mean the, I, uh, the drag queen. Sure, sure. <laughs> oh, man. Um, <laughs> oh, divine. Uh, yeah, you know, we're both influenced by, like, you know, Taoist philosophy, and, and that really speaks to me. I haven't placed a what on it, and I, I don't go into the negative, like, what it isn't so much, although I, I do think it's beyond personality, simply because personalities or you know is developed by the experience of almost like by elimination like these are the people you've met and that have influenced you and that's because you haven't met all these other people okay. <laughs> and of course you can't meet everybody mm -hmm. you can only meet so many people you can only even be influenced some would say during your you know formative mm -hmm. period but my belief and I mean this is I don't have all that many like, oh, I believe. I believe in the, that humans are good, basically, or you know, whatever. Yeah. It's like I, 
I really don't have that. I, I think there's probably fewer good than we're willing to admit as people, you know. But I do believe that we can change very late. You, you know, have evidence for this? Well, yeah, experiential. So my dad, just within the last year, I think it was around Thanksgiving, watched, I think it might have been the third documentary that Sanjay Gupta did. He's a CNN guy, if I've got the name right, uh, about marijuana, cannabis. Mm -hmm. And he changed his mind about, you know, the benefits, you know, potential uh, benefits of So he it. started smoking weed? He started, he's down. <laughs> no, I, I mean, he, it, basically, it, it's more of like a social policy, I, I would think, that, you know. So he's okay with the medical marijuana? Right, right, okay, right, yeah. right. That, okay. that this has, that isn't what he's been told, basically, mm -hmm. you know. And so, and knowing also that, you know, he had very negative, because he, he's confessed mm -hmm. that, you know, he had negative you know, racist uh, beliefs and that, you know, he had to change that. And basically, because it wasn't Christian, I, I think is, is, I know he had like a negative reaction, Martin Luther King Jr. He had a negative reaction to his movement and like, Hearing that he was assassinated, it was like, well, so that's what you get, kind of oh, thing. Wow. And it's easy for us to judge, judge not having sure. been there because it was different times, and you know, MLK was not portrayed very well in the press. Right. Like the I, mean, I mean, and people just didn't. just even thinking about like how he viewed, you know, marijuana. This is very much like, okay, this is what you're supposed to think. I mean, you know, he he was like, okay, that's what I'm supposed to think, and he and he got it. Again, the creative act is an escape from the power of time and an ascent to the divine. In the divine, there is no time. There, time doesn't exist. There's no beginning and there's no end. And so for myself, the interesting thing about what happened to me as I was growing up and in my, from up until I was 31 years old, I didn't know what direction my life was going in. So time didn't really make any difference to me and the creative part of me, because I think every individual has a, a creativity about them that, that you know, they can create things. So when I was 31 years old, I had something happen on a Tuesday evening at eight o'clock in the evening in 1981 in the month of May that completely changed my mind or my direction of life. And so when that happened, then I found out that there actually is a purpose for me to be here on Earth. And then discovering that there's no time, there's no beginning and there's no end. Uh, yet I was always very fearful of life. And so then I find out that as I continued to walk in this place of where I knew what direction my life was going in. I became so excited that I poured myself into it. And at the time I was a single person. I had been single for 17 years. And being raised from the Amish culture caused me to, to be all excited about this because 
I remember being raised in, in an Amish home, and really, if I was to go outside of the area where I was raised at, it was like really something special for us because we had the horse and buggy, so we would never travel. Back in the 50s, it was very unusual for the Amish to travel. Today, if we would travel then, it would, we'd travel by train because we weren't allowed to fly. And so what happened is that when this took place in my life and I saw the creativity of all of it and that there was no beginning and no end, I just got excited and poured myself into this. And I never read before. I didn't enjoy reading. But I started reading and doing a lot of research and found out about the divine. My life became joyful. And so today, no matter what happens in my life, I am very happy and very, I, I love life. I really enjoy life. And I know I tell the kids that on, on the bus a lot of times, that I really enjoy life. Let's go back to the concept of time. In your mind, is, is time a, uh, like a fabricated constraint that we put upon ourselves? Is that what you're saying? I believe it is. I understand myself as counting the time. Time is very precious to me and how I spend time. Because if I don't spend it properly, I'm wasting it. And if I waste time, because at this point in my life, I'm going to live, I feel I'm going to live forever. This is, there's no, there's no end to my life. Even though I'm going to have to face death eventually. Right now, I want to leave a legacy for my grandchildren. And so time is very precious to me as I'm getting older, because I'm 67 years old. What was the event that changed you? I had a restaurant, and I had Amish food that I served at the restaurant, and so I had a gentleman that was on drugs and alcohol that would come in there, and he would sit at the counter. And so he said, Jerry, he said, how about, uh, would you like to go to church with me? And I said, sure, Rick, I'll go to church with you sometime. But I kept pushing it off for about six months. So finally... And this guy was high most of the time. Well, well he was he, not at that point. So, uh -huh. He had a change of life. That was his past. And so he had, he had really changed. And I saw the change in him. And so I said, yeah, I'll go to church with you sometime. And so finally, at six months, about six months later, I decided to go to church with him. Well, the pastor was preaching about something that I was guilty of using a lot of excuses. And so I thought to myself, did Rick tell him about what I was using as the excuses, and Rick never said anything. So I, I was convicted, and of course didn't understand all of this, but went, went up front when they had the invitation. So I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I went through the motions, but when I went through the motions, it really didn't happen. I didn't feel any different. So when I went back out, that was on a Sunday morning, and on a Monday morning, I received a big bouquet of flowers from the local drugstore congratulating me for accepting Christ. And I'm going, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. And so what happened is that this heavy thing came upon me because I said, I, I just went through the motions. I did this just to please him. Mm -hmm. It was on a Tuesday morning, the next morning, the pastor came in and said, Jerry, how, uh, how are you doing? And how was your experience? And I said, well, Pastor, I really didn't experience anything. He said, well, would it be okay if I'd come over and see you tonight? And so when he came to the house, then he sat down with the associate pastor and with my girlfriend at the time. 
And he went through the Romans Road and explained everything to me. And when he explained everything to me, now this, is, this part was interesting because when I, was a, when I was a teenager, I was asked to have prayer to, get, you know, for, to pray over some food. And I couldn't pray. I didn't know what to say. But that night, like I said, it was 8 o'clock in the evening. And when he asked me if I wanted to accept Christ, I said, yes, I do. And after I understood it, and then they got up and left. And I went upstairs into my walk-in closet, and I prayed like I never, I couldn't believe what was coming out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. And so from that night and the next morning, I just knew that my life had changed. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened. Again, the creative act is an escape from the power of time and an ascent to the divine. I love just talking about creativity itself, just because uh, for, for lots and lots and lots of reasons. I, I think it's uh, one of the things I've always loved about it is that it's one of the marks of what it means to be genuinely human, is creative acts themselves, uh, because I believe in my personal worldview that we're separated by it uh, from the animals, you know, in the image of God. And that's one of the markers when you look, okay, what really separates? Animals build things, but then again, they don't. They don't pass that on. You can tell they don't think through, you know, I really think I could build this honeycomb differently. But the escape from the power of time, I never really thought of it that way before. But Are, are you a creative person? Am I a creative person? I like to think so, but I don't self-label as an artist. I've always been scared to do that. I don't know why. I mean, because yeah. I, I'm a musician of sorts. Well, then they people expect you to be around creative people. If you say you're creative, people expect you to be good. I think is the maybe that's problem. it. Yeah, that's right. Because I know who I do consider to be artist, and I love to teach artists and work with artists, and I consider myself a bit of a producer, if you will, and uh-huh. and and have been in music groups and that sort of stuff. But the escape from time thing, when you do think about it in your mind and in your life. For an hour, you can enter a place, you can enter an entire world. If you have a creative idea, you know, you know, okay, well, that's going to take X amount of time. I'm going to have to make my to-do list and all that sort of stuff. But on the other hand, you could build something inside your head. And just as an expression, say it's a photo that captures you or a piece of music or just a, a line from a song or a, that you write or whatever that kind of does hold things where you don't feel limited. Imagination's not limited. In time, which is which is kind of a cool thought. I never I had never really heard of it put that way. And and the ascent to the divine. Now this gets in me because I'm into the divine thing. Is a is a is okay to say I'm a pastor? Is yeah, that that's totally fine. That's a pastor. Ascent to the divine because it gets back to that because uh, especially from a Christian worldview point of view is that God the first thing you know about him is he's the creator of things mm-hmm. and and life uh, whatever problems it has we live in a universe that we look around and you see art, you just do. People can't help it. People react to everything from sunsets to walking on the beach to flowers to even other people. You look around and, you, and, and you're connecting to something you know that has a, that transcends beyond simple biology or just functionality. And that's the beauty of art. I mean, right. it's, 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 it's about more than the pragmatic. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, I, I love it. One, one man said there's, the world is filled with what we would label useless beauty. Beauty's not useless. It's right. a paradox of it. You know, you, you see, well, why are, why are roses have that striking color? I remember, I think it was G.K. Chesterton said that 
that a rose has an intentionality that's, that almost looks like spilt blood. You know, there, there's something to it that it makes a statement. Almost right. like, boom. And he went on to make the connection. It looks like someone intended it mm -hmm. because art itself is about intentionality. Uh, it's almost like the, one of the root definers of art is someone intended that and I can feel it. It's not just design stuff. It's more about someone was expressing something. And so when I say, when I think of the divine, I do make those connections with, when I look around at the world, I do feel like I'm inside of an art piece. One of the criticisms, at least, because you, you brought up the Christian worldview, one of the right. criticisms from the outside world is, especially if you go to Europe and you look at all right. these cathedrals, I mean, you're so blown away, you know, and that's right. what they were meant to be, what I understand. They were meant to be sure. a way of praising God or a way of celebrating Him. But the critic would say, why did you waste all that money and all that time making these structures when you could have been, you know, feeding the poor or bettering people's lives? And of course, we're sitting in your church, which is not a, you know, a bunch right. of uh, pillars and gargoyles and all that type of thing. But what would you say to that? Well, I think there's two two lines of thought on that. One, if you study the history of it, they did help the poor a whole lot. I mean, the church has been called the Compassion Revolution, introduced into the Roman Empire. Right. So you, they attached hospitals. The concept of a hospital was always in orphanages were attached to churches and things. So there, there was like that physically side attached of it. to. Yeah, the, yeah, like they would they would do things like that. Mm -hmm. So the compassion has been a part of the fabric of the Christian worldview from the very beginning. We all do that in some form. All human beings mm -hmm. kind of have that, why'd you spend that money on that thing that gave you, because it touched your soul. I mean, it, we're not all about functionality. Yeah, mm -hmm. we wanna make sure people are fed, but is that what life is really all about, ultimately? Mm -hmm. We wanna feed people and clothe people so that they can enjoy the beauties and wonders of the soul of having their, I, I've, I've had the privilege of being, uh, I, I did get to be, visit the Vatican and not being a Catholic or anything, but I remember walking around in St. Peter's and there's a whole history around the controversy around that from sure. a Protestant angle. But I had to admit one thing, holy cow, I can see why somebody would be into this because it was so overwhelmingly amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Bernini is one of the sculptors that did a lot of the work in there and his stuff, and of course you see the Michelangelo stuff, that transcendent effect is there. You, you can't deny it. I, I, one of the most beautiful things I ever saw in my life was uh, when at St. Peter's, it was at another one, I forget, I think it was St. Paul's, where the Moses was. Here's a statue that was made by this guy. And you literally just stood there looking at the statue. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. And that's why we came and we were all just standing there staring at it. Well, do you want to remove that from life? And he was inspired out of the Moses figure. And, and uh, I, I guess I would say, is that how you want life to be? I mean, let's just go ahead and bring up communism. They're not exactly known for their wonderful... <laughs> we spent time in Afghanistan and they have this one section of the city under that was during the communist era. It would be funny if it weren't so sad. Mm -hmm. The architecture was so horrible and so uninspiring and so... And not beautiful. And also ironic, yeah. since the communists starved, like, what, 70 million people? Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. exact thing. So. I mean, and so because there wasn't that lift up soul, but the, the, the quote was about the creative act yeah. being a sense of the divine. So when, when I'm acting, i got to stay on task here. That's right. When I'm in the act of creativity, for me it does, it puts me in touch with that. The first thing we know about God in the Bible is that he's a creator. The next thing we know is that he created man in his image. And the only image you're given about him there is that he's a creator. So when I do that, when I am involved in the creative act, I just see that image of God thing flowing because, again, it goes back to that thing of 
human beings are artists. They say that's what they look for, even in archaeological digs, and as they're studying, were humans here? Well, well you know, there was, a, I think, a, maybe a misnomer, or at least people perceive when they say that uh, we're creating the image of God, that, that God has two eyes and a nose and a mouth. You right, know, yeah, and all yeah that. that's it. Yeah. So obviously yeah. that's, a mis- that's a little bit yeah. of a misunderstanding. Yeah, and, and, and image, the original word is kind of the same word that you might use for a statue. You, you got to think metaphorically, but it's a statue of a person. Well, that's not the person, right. uh, obviously. Zellum, but it does reflect uh, something of the essence of the person that you could say, "Hey, that's Tim. Hey, that's that's so and so." And I think we all naturally do that. Uh, even people who wouldn't label themselves Christian people would, would look and say. They, they get that artistic feel. And so that's what happens to me in the creative act. There's just that transcendent effect because we know there's something else going on through either reading a great piece of literature or seeing a great painting or even acting and doing it yourself. You're participating in something, I guess I would say essentially human. And you know about yourself that something else is going on there besides I'm a functioning animal walking around. I'm a bag of cells, you know, uh-huh. it's sort of my, my synapses are firing and I'm just sort of this machine. You know, we must be more than machines. It's kind of one of the big cries of, you know, human life. Right. I think we all feel that even when we, when we do just draw a picture or uh, enjoy a great piece of music and we've all been there. Now the source of the quotes. We hate in others what we despise about ourselves. Appears to be a variation on either the quote by Marion Keyes, which says, The things we dislike the most in others are the characteristics we like least in ourselves. Or Carl Jung's, Everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. I believe the first time I heard this sentiment was the day I spent with King Crimson guitarist Robert Fripp which is a story for another time. The next quote. Tonight, the moon looks as if it were freshly washed. Let's have a toast. Is by Ming Dynasty playwright Tang Xianzu, spoken by the character Chun Yu Fen in the play Dream Under the Southern Bow. My favorite of his works, the plot has Chun Yu in a dream entering a nation of ants via an ant hole and marrying the daughter of the king of the ants. And the last quote, The creative act is an escape from the power of time and an ascent to the divine, is by Nikolai Berdyev, a Russian political and religious philosopher who spoke extensively on the importance of human freedom, spirituality, and individuality. He was a critic of both the czarist and Soviet rules of his nation, he eventually being arrested by the communist government for conspiracy interrogated, and ultimately exiled. Berdyov's interrogation was immortalized in a scene in Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. In the corner, back by the woodpile, it's produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up Spun Counter Guy. If you want to say hi or send us nasty words, you can email us at SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com And you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and Podbean.com We'll see you on the flip side.